Greetings, dear listeners. Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Haze, 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 haze. Podcast. You're getting ahead of yourself here. This is still the Remnant Podcast with Jonah Goldberg. Um, and as point of fact, as you may or may not recall, I actually own the intellectual property rights of this podcast. This does not belong to our new thing. Now, if you want to make an offer where you buy out my property, you can. Anyway, uh, listeners, if you haven't figured it out yet, Steve Hayes is finally back from Spain, which is very exciting for some of us. And it's extremely exciting to the local beer and chicken wing industry, which has been in recession for over a year. But he is not taking over this podcast. We are not bringing in neo-Hispanics to do jobs that Americans are currently doing. Uh, but Steve is here. Welcome. Welcome back from Spain. It's good to be back. Yeah. Good to be here. The weird thing is, is that like this is not a new, exciting experience for me because Steve and I talk to each other an obscene amount. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, we Google actually, hangouts, phone calls, conference calls. Texts. Yes. Emails. Uh, te- three-way text, four-way text, two-way text, two-way text about the three-way text. Um, like yeah, they're not that. Um, uh, you did send me that one the other day. What are you wearing? It was weird. It was. But Out of the blue. But we were going to go have dinner with a prominent politician. And Good didn't point. Know what I was gonna, you know, so... Uh, but I did feel like a high school girl planning like back to school day or something. Um, not that I want to gender that. I'm sure boys do that too. Um, so yeah, so like we do an enormous amount of conference call stuff. We actually did, you, me, and Toby Stock, our third partner, did a big picture conference call a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, that I figured out lasted longer than all of my previous conference calls from say 2000 to 2018 combined yeah it was pretty it was pretty epic it was it was nearly four hours something like or that. was it more than it was i think it just it just hit four hours because yeah. it started like eight and we stopped for lunch it's amazing that we didn't solve every single like problem and answer every single question that we had in front of us or or really any <laughs> <laughs> um so for listeners who are sort of catching up but we're not going to go to the full explanation but steve and i are starting a new what do you call it because it's not quite a magazine media venture media company media company. what i say yeah but we've said enterprise project right joint every now and then like spike lee joint exactly hayes goldberg joint um or more properly goldberg hayes and uh alphabetical order um and we've been doing it so it turns out which i could have guessed of all the things i didn't know about starting a business um, one of the ones I was actually, my gut instinct was right. It makes it more difficult when the future CEO and founder of the company is living in Madrid. I can see that. Yeah. I can understand that. I mean, the time zone, the time zone problem was a challenge. If I was doing conference calls at say midnight, right. uh, wasn't always as awake as I might've otherwise been. Or sober. <laughs> um, but look, we 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 managed to to pull through it, and I think we're in a pretty good position right now. As we yeah yeah yeah, no, we, it all it, it's all early August. So first of all, why don't you do the short version of why the hell you went to Spain, and because um, we've already revealed why you came back, basically. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, the, 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 I'll, I'll give the real short version. My wife and I had this idea ten plus years ago. Really, it was my idea, and my wife was a super good sport about it. I wanted to live in Spain. When I was in college, I had studied Spanish in high school. And instead of going to Spain to study abroad, I went to Germany because the Berlin Wall had just fallen. And I loved it. Don't regret a minute of it. But I never got to the point where I was fluent in Spanish. And I wanted to be fluent in Spanish. But more importantly, we wanted our kids. We've got four kids, uh, 14, 12, 9, and 2. And we wanted them to have language ability. We wanted them to live outside the country, to live in a different culture, both to appreciate that different culture, but also to help mm-hmm. them further appreciate what we have here in the U.S. Um, and we hatched that plan 10 years ago, and it wasn't really a serious plan. We sort of kicked it around and mused about how cool it would be. And then we got serious five years ago and then actually went over there and took a scouting trip in early 2016 and picked the city and picked the school. And, and then next thing we know, we were doing it. So And no regrets. No, no regrets. I loved loved every minute of it. It exceeded all of our expectations in in every respect. The kids loved it. I, I was 
you, you go on that, you figure that one, probably one out of four kids is going to have maybe not a bad experience, but not a great experience. Yeah. All just great experiences. The, the biggest challenge for me was the weekly standard. Yeah. I mean, you know, we had made arrangements before I went that I was going to be able to go and all that, but it was hard. You know, we, we obviously would have preferred to keep the weekly standard alive and a going concern and to try to, to, to make that argument from over there was challenging. Yeah, no, um, it's funny when I've, whenever I've spent any time in Europe while being a writer or an editor, it turns out that the time zone stuff in Europe is actually super helpful times yeah. because you're, you know, when you wake up, you've got about six hours before yes. the East coast of the United States wakes up and you can get an enormous amount done and put stuff on other people's plates and then go about your day um, yeah. before everybody else. I was listening to, I mean, one of the things that won't come as any surprise to, to people who have been following this, but one of the things we want to do with this new company is is have newsletters. And I was listening to a podcast about newsletter production, newsletter business. I forget which newsletter it was, um, which probably kills the story. But whatever newsletter it was deliberately had positioned people around the world mm. so that they were, you know, if you're up at nine in the morning in Spain, you can work until three before you get to nine in the morning on the East Coast or right. whatever it is. Whatever the math is. Yeah. Um, and so people can produce, you know, being awake in sort of sane people hours, um, a fully baked newsletter and send it out. Um, yeah. So I may have to go back next year. So um – for years, when I tell people the story about how I lived, very briefly, but when I lived in Prague after college, I went off to be a starving writer, and I always say I um, I batted 500, I didn't starve, and I didn't write. Um, <laughs> you went off to Spain to have a great time with your family and to learn Spanish, and you kind of batted 500 because your Spanish es no, no muy bueno, right? Es la verdad. Uh, <laughs> puedo entender mucho, pero no puedo hablar bien. Uh, it was, Donde it, esta el baño? <laughs> <laughs> no, we did. I taught my kids this this thing that was like a throwback to when I was taking Spanish in high school, and you listened to all these recorded uh, voices, and then you had to to repeat them. And the the famous line that we always did was, "Yo tengo una cita con Anita." I have a date with Anita, uh-huh. and so we would do this all that like everywhere I'd go when I didn't know what else to say, I would say, "Yo tengo una cita con Anita," and we had a, an intercom in our apartment and. The the thing we did with the kids was like when they would run across the street to the grocery store or something and they would come back, they would ring the bell and they would pretend that they were a Spanish-speaking person to like, you know, mm-hmm. put fear in me like I was going to have to speak <laughs> Spanish back to them. But I would answer as if I were a Spanish-speaking. So I did this once. The kids went over to the grocery. Um, the doorbell rang. I answered and I said, yo tengo una cita con Anita. And it was some Spanish delivery guy. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> perdón. <laughs> so one last question about this because I think it's kind of fascinating. Um, when you hear, after being among all these high-flown, fancy um, Castilian Spaniards, as you were, when you come here and you hear American Hispanics speaking in their Mexican accented or you know, Central American or Puerto Rican or whatever it is, how, I don't want to be pejorative, how different does it sound to you? I mean, it's a little different for sure. And there are different words. I mean, there are words that are common in in Spain and Madrid that, that just aren't really used in other Spanish-speaking countries. The most popular, probably the word I said in Spanish more than any other the whole time I was there was vale, which just basically, I mean, you can use it for anything, but it basically means okay or cool or I'm good with that or that sounds good. And nobody else uses it. So we were uh, – I was having a conversation – attempting to have a conversation in Spanish with a, a woman uh, from Central America just this past weekend. And she finished saying what she was saying and I said, Bale. And she just looked at me like, what do you mean, Bale? I think she thought I meant like dancing or something. <laughs> it was uh, – you, you can pick it up. I mean my Spanish isn't – I'm not a very sophisticated Spanish speaker or Spanish listener. But well, frankly, there are differences. You aren't in English either. So fair. I mean, fair. <laughs> that's a fair point. <laughs> uh, I'm, I mean I know Spanish food and Spanish wines a lot, a lot better than I know the language. Yeah. OK. So uh, just so you know, uh, and this is a courtesy to my listeners, um, there – are very few moratoriums and boycotts on this podcast, but I'm preemptively laying down one. <laughs> There'll be no discussion of Spanish wine um, because, f- just so listeners know, uh, Steve talks about Spanish wine like 
some high school nerd's really hot girlfriend in Canada. I mean, he just he just <laughs> talks about it constantly, and he's constantly whenever whenever he looks at the menu in America, and he's he will do the conversion about how in euros this is so much cheaper, and oh my god, the markup isn't this fascinating, and the blah 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 blah, and. I'm like Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive. I don't care! <laughs> you could have told me this before now. I, you chose now to no, do this, this in is, public? I, this to make is, this, this announcement this that is, you don't care? This is, no, this, this is this is truly honest. I've said this to you so many times in so many polite ways. I haven't been listening. And it bounces off your forehead and you say, oh, and another thing about Spanish wine. <laughs> I haven't been listening. Yeah, I mean, so just my one comment uh, about Spanish wine. <laughs> I'm, 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 I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I like Spanish wine. I think Spanish wine is the best value proposition of any kind of wine in the world. But I'm as interested or maybe more interested in the economics of it. I mean, mm. it's crazy to me that you can buy – that a $15 bottle of wine in downtown Madrid at the grocery store is $65 yeah. at a – at Total Wines, at a at a big wine store here. A why big bargain is that, wine yeah, store. Yeah. Why is that the case? And the, the, there aren't those pr- price changes on Italian wine and French wine and wine from New Zealand and, and elsewhere. So I'm determined. I'm actually working on a piece. Uh-huh. Maybe I guess I won't be able to publish it in our new thing. <laughs> no, you can publish it in your <laughs> thing. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but and I, and I will say, you know, because you're one of the things we're going to, I guess we're announcing right here is at some point you're going to be hosting your own podcast. At some point I yeah. will be. And, and, and I'll announce to you right now. You don't know this yet. This is breaking news uh-huh. to you. It is going to be called Spanish Wine 101. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, what I was going to say is I thought you were going to issue like a moratorium on like <laughs> Dune references or Star Trek or something. But um, uh, it seems to me an obvious fit that you should find some Spanish wine importer to advertise. Because the trick I found, I was talking to Jane Coston about this the other day. Uh, she's at Vox. We had her on. That'll be airing after the weekend. And she's starting her own podcast that ad reads are so much easier when you really like the product. Yeah. You don't, I mean, look, I mean, I actually do like sleep number beds, so I have no problem doing that, but there's some products like, you know, they're fine, they're good, whatever, I'm not going to badmouth any of them here. And when you get the free sample and you look at it and you test it out, you feel comfortable with it. And we've turned, at Glop, we've turned down ads for, I remember at one point, they wanted us to do an ad for some male enhancement pill. And we were just like, nope, 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 can't. Can't talk about how we tried it. Can't. Nope. There's no way we're going anywhere like that. Lots of things I could say right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, uh, and this is a plea to, to potential advertisers out there: if you make chicken wings or various cheese products <laughs> or the Green Bay Packers, I'm so easy. <laughs> um, or, or in my case, uh, Jameson's Irish whiskey or a whole <laughs> slew of different kinds of cigars, I I will actually eat into program time. To sell certain products um, because I like them anyway and I would praise them anyway. So there's that. Um, but since we, <laughs> we, we got into all this about the the thing what we're doing, um, there's still stuff for all sorts of reasons that we're not allowed either by law or um, by, by business strategy and whatnot to talk about. But um, why don't you – because people have been hearing hints enough from me for a very long time and I've been – been hinting that you're going to come on the podcast and we're going to talk about this stuff. And it's been a little bit like, I don't know, listening to Godot. Um, (laughs) Why don't you uh, tell our listeners what the hell we're doing? So this is really, you are the starting point of all this this nonsense that we're into now. Um, Yeah. Well, cut me off if I, if I'm start revealing trade secrets or whatnot. Um, It's a pretty straightforward business proposition. We, we see a, a, a hole in the political media landscape uh, on the center right um, that can be filled by an organization that does reliable fact-based reporting and commentary from a conservative perspective. And we're not running away from our worldview. We're conservatives or classical liberals or however we want to describe ourselves. It's part of who we are. It's part of where we come from. It'll inform the, inform the questions we ask. It'll inform the way that we approach issues. But we're going to 
report things out. I mean, reporting is really going to be at the center of the enterprise. It's expensive. Um, it's resource intensive, but we think it's really important. Right. We're going to start small with it because we have to because of right. the nature of the beast, but we're going to grow with it. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think if, if you're listening to this and you're, you're an ideological conservative and, and you're looking at sort of the landscape out there, uh, I think as a conservative, it's unwise to sort of seed the reporting ground to the left, or to right. the center left. You know, even mainstream media organizations that that you and I might think, yeah, they do a pretty good job of, of trying to be even-handed. Most of their reporters don't come to these questions with the same set of assumptions. And uh, I mean, with, with they all do come with the same set of assumptions. Many of them right. don't come from different, you know, come from the Midwest or come from an evangelical Christian background or have a worldview like yours or mine. And we think that's going to make it a much more lively uh, and textured conversation and and place for people to get their information. Yeah. I mean, so part of the point, which I've talked about a little bit on here, not in the context of what we're doing, but so much, um, although I, I guess I wrote something in the first uh, post-NR G-file about this, is that so much of the mainstream media and right-wing media are often serving as de facto proxies for the party system in a way because the party system, the parties right. themselves can't do the work anymore and so there's a lot a lot of reporting out there that is really more I'm not saying it's bad but it's um it's like good opposition research right. and one of the things uh you know because I'm so cool I started reading the new republic when i was like 12 and um we might have different definition <laughs> cool <laughs> uh and um i was being self-deprecating and um and the old new republic under like michael kinsley i mean i shouldn't say the really old new republic under herbert crowley which was a different matter um for a future podcast <laughs> um but uh the New Republic of the eight, late 80s and 90s, you knew everyone who worked for it was basically liberal, including at the time, with the exception of maybe Fred Barnes, right? right? And a third to half of Krauthammer's brain, because he was still migrating right. at the time. Yep. But they took really seriously the idea of holding their own side accountable yeah. and sticking to the facts as best they could. Now, sometimes they went off the rails, as with like Steve Glass, where... They manufactured facts, but that's, you know, neither here nor there. So one of the things that we kind of see as a, as a ethos for this is this idea that we're going to stay conservative, but we also want to call BS on some of the crazy stuff. And so that one of the things that, that, that you and I both sort of can't stand, even though sometimes it's fun, let's stipulate, uh, but the nut picking, right? Which yeah. is where... I, th I actually think David French might have coined it. I'm not sure. But, Such a great phrase. But it's the it's an ideological version of cherry picking where you take the very worst people of the other side and you hold them up like a Medusa's head and you say, see, this is what they're all like. Right. And the left does it to the right and the right does it to the left. And if you look at like a lot of the reporters who cover, quote unquote, the right, they define covering the right as like covering the alt-right and the fever swamps. Correct. And it's a it's a it's an insidious way of suggesting that the entire Republican Party is sort of in league with, you know, neo-Nazis and whatnot. Right. And we know where the bodies are buried and we know the distinctions here. I spent 20 years at NR fighting with a lot of racist and anti-Semites who didn't like the fact that I was at NR and they weren't. I can name some names if you like. And we know that mainstream conservatism isn't that and shouldn't be that. And that's part of the perspective that we want to come to. Right, exactly. And and look, I mean, we're, I think the – if you look back at where we've come from, I mean, Fred Barnes came from a reporting background. He was right. the Washington Star. He was – when I was wrote my uh, biography of Dick Cheney, I spent months and months in the news archives of the Ford administration because Cheney was chief, deputy chief of staff and then chief of staff. And Fred Barnes was an extraordinary reporter. He broke a ton of those stories. That's what he brought to the New Republic. Right. He went out and he, I mean, he had strong opinions. He wasn't hesitant to share his opinions, but he went out and reported the heck out of stuff. And so I think not everybody's going to do that. I mean, sure. of course, it's it's great to have just smart, funny, fact-based commentary. Um, but I think we'd like to limit sort of the the hot takery. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's good to let things 
sit for a little bit and give them some thought beyond sort of knee-jerk reactions and make sure that the facts are what they seem to be before, you know, jumping to moral outrage or yeah, condemning. Yeah, I mean, so this is an important point that, um, and we can't get too deep in the business model of what we're doing, but um, uh, one of the things that we're sort of, is sort of in our, we haven't written one yet, but in our uh, platonic charter is we reject clickbait. Right, right, and and clickbait. Do you reject clickbait? I do. The power of slow reads compels you. Um, so the uh, the part of the problem with the the business structure of the of the media these days is that, and it's weird because it, this is this, this sort of always been this part of the structure of it. It was just it was less efficient in the past. Is um, the more eyeballs you have, the more money you have, which in and of itself is fine, right? Higher ratings should have higher ad rates than than lower ratings. I get that, but a big chunk of the web now that the 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 wall of separation between the business model and the product has sort of been worn away, and if you look at a lot of websites, the goal is just to elicit a sort of a dopamine hit of outrage from readers so they'll click and that's fueled by the sort of the what we call programmatic ads which are these you know toe fungus and whatnot ads and we want to reject that we want to go you know i mean i don't want to sound haughty but part of the model is to go for quality over quantity not just in the content but in the readers right and um and give people a little bit more of what they need and not just what they want to hear yeah, I mean, the way I've described it before, and I hate it when people quote themselves, but there's, there's there are strong incentives in modern journalism to provide affirmation rather than information. Right, and you can you can see it. I mean, the 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 way I've uh, I've talked about it is the 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 scene from Naked Gun. Did we talk about this before on the podcast? There's- not on the podcast, but okay. there's literally nothing that we haven't talked about with That's each other. Fair. That's true. That's a good point. Well, so, so listeners who have seen The Naked Gun will, will know this. It, it's the scene where um, Leslie Nielsen goes to a baseball game and he is posing as the umpire, whose name I believe was Enrico Palazzo. Right. And, excuse me. He's first posing as the person who sings the national anthem. Right. Enrico Palazzo. The, the he butchers. He butchers the national anthem. Then he goes and changes into the umpire's clothing, and this is all. He's all undercover. He's trying to get information, and goes and sits behind home plate with the mask on, so nobody recognizes him. Everything, and the first pitch comes over the plate, and he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know whether to call out a, a ball or a strike. So he, he sort of looks out and he pauses and very tentatively says, "Strike." <laughs> And the crowd goes crazy. They love it because it's the home crowd. And he looks sort of back at the crowd like, oh, I get how this works. And then the next pitch comes over. And then the the third pitch comes over. And before it even hits the plate, he does... And he does a big dance. and Starts whole, moonwalking. Yeah. yeah. And he's giving the crowd exactly what it wants. And I think, look, we should be clear. There's a lot of good journalism Absolutely. and a lot of good journalism on the, on the right yeah. these days. Um, but there's also increasingly uh, there are these incentives to do that, mm-hmm. to say, what is the audience? What's going to make them happy? What's going to make them stand and, you know, proverbially cheer? Let's give them that. Let's call a strike when it's not at all a strike. Yeah. You know, let's, the, the pitcher throws the ball at the batter's head and we call a strike. And I think there is there is a lot of that going on, too. And yeah. we certainly we, – we hope we can provide something of, a, of a, uh, an alternative to that. And also, we, we – we should say that this – we're not just talking about – I mean I don't want they're, – they're, you have to be careful about what sites you pick out to criticize whatever because then that becomes a thing for them. To, oh, blah, blah, blah. But you know, this, this phenomenon is not simply a thing that affects places like, like I don't know, WorldNet Daily or Breitbart or anything like that. The New York Times has gotten into the business of running 
one head past the sphincter ass kissing article after another about communism. Yeah. You know, and I mean, not too long ago on the anniversary of the uh, Apollo uh, launch, the uh, Times did a piece about how, you know, really at the end of the day, the Soviets had the better space program because they sent more of a Benetton ad series of cosmonauts into space, you know, and so they're, you know. Their cosmonauts, they, they they didn't go to the moon, but they looked like a like like America, you know, and that kind of nonsense. Unbelievable. And they've been doing, you know, and they and they're they had that the, too. Didn't they have the one about how socialists have better sex? Yes, or, yes, communists have better was, sex. Was that a series, or th- they had a series about? It, it was a for s- revisiting the old Soviet Union and right. all its glory, and right. It was it was a perfect example of sort of ideological taxidermy, where you take the dead body of something and then you put a lot slap a lot of makeup on it and gussy it up right so it was a series about communism and one of the installments was how under communists the sex was better yeah and that's nonsense right yeah. but there's a there's an enormous amount of that kind of stuff jen rubin to pick another easy example she gets huge traffic at the post because she tells her readers exactly what they want to hear and the her readers in particular love the fiction that she is somehow um a Republican or a conservative who is right. the last honest woman in America. Right. And and that sort of raises one of the things that people ask us a lot about is, you know, is this going to be some anti-Trump thing? And um, I think certainly listeners of this podcast know that I consider myself a Trump skeptic. I haven't called myself a never-Trumper since the election. But we really, I mean, you know, we'll cover the Trump administration honestly and, um, and you know, toughly. I think that's fair to say. But I conceive of this as very much a post-Trump rather than an anti-Trump thing. And the Trump administration is doing some things right. I think they're basically right on Iran. I think, you know, I liked the corporate tax cuts. I didn't like the personal side as much. Um, The judges, for the most part, are great. You know, and as conservatives, I have no problem saying that kind of stuff. The regulatory unwinding has been phenomenal. Yeah. No, that stuff is all good, too. And so, but my point is just simply that... There's a lot of stuff going on in conservative. This is a fantastic time to cover conservatism, this national conservative stuff that's going on. You have Josh Hawley sort of redefining conservatism to be like basically nanny state conservatism. And between us and the people we're going to hire, we actually know where these departures from sort of tradition or orthodoxy or whatever you want to call it where they are and where they aren't. And we understand the gradations in there. And we think that's a great stuff to cover regardless if Trump wins in 2020 or if he doesn't win. These are, there are issues on trade and all these things that aren't just about Trump's personality. They're actually about the issues. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, you know, one of the, one of our objectives is going to be to provide depth where sometimes there's not depth in the day-to-day reporting that the, the, you know, Nat news cycle and in that sense, I think, at least speaking just for myself, I have sort of a slightly different approach than the people who say, well, we're going to call balls and strikes mm-hmm. on the Trump administration to go back to Enrico Palazzo. For me, it's calling balls and strikes. That's good. You should do that. But you also have to think about how uh, the pitchers distorting the game. Mm-hmm. And I think that's happening here um, in some ways, arguably for the better. Um, and in many other ways, not for the better, in my view. And I think it's we have an obligation to do that. You have to look at what's happening in context. It's not just enough to say, OK, well, particularly as we're talking about conservative movement, the, mm. the future of conservatism, the way that conservatism or the, the, the space that conservatism fills in American politics. It's not just good, good enough to say these were great tax cuts and that's sort of the end of the discussion. Well, OK, what, is, what does that mean? What were the arguments that were marshaled um, in favor of the tax cuts? Were they, did, did they persuade uh, people that these were the right things to do because they made better arguments and therefore people are now more inclined to think the tax cuts are good? What are the effects of the tax cuts? Yeah, I mean, were the predictions about what they would do accurate, right? right Which exactly. is a huge thing. And th- th- this sort of, I mean, I g- got sidetracked by something. I can't remember what, but maybe it was that when Steve was describing the Enrico Palazzo scene from Naked Gun, he was literally standing up and like <laughs> doing the moonwalk and all that. It was just a spectacle of grace and manhood combined. It was really amazing. But anyway, the... Oh, I thought we were going to tell people the truth. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, part of what we're trying to figure out how to do is, you know, the, the particularly in the age of Twitter, the hot take rhythm of 
web journalism, which I've been part of for a long time, right? Of I mean, I was the guy who came up with the corner at National Review, and and that was in part a way to respond to stuff that appeared in the morning paper, that appeared on cable news, and in real time have a rebuttal to it. Right. And so, um, and I, I'm proud of the corner and all the rest, but at the end of the day, um, it seems like there's so much of that now. There's like this wind tunnel of hot immediate takes. And we're very attracted to the idea of taking a beat, slowing down, not trying to be on the soundbite of the hour and instead sort of provide a little perspective, a little breathing room, while at the same time saying topical and current and all of that. Right. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think you also avoid mistakes doing it that way. And I think a lot of what's happening now, and this is true both of the president's defenders and his detractors, people jump to these conclusions about what things mean or something the president has said. And then the most recent example is in this Elijah Cummings back and forth when the president used the word infested to describe Baltimore and immediately uh, led by an impassioned emotional plea by a CNN anchor. There was a, a suggestion in the mainstream media that the president only nobody else would call Baltimore infested, number one. Number two, the president only uses infested when he's talking about people of color. Well, it turns out Elijah Cummings has used the word infested right. to describe his district and P- Trump has used infested to, tribe, to describe New Hampshire and all of these other. But for the people who sort of jumped on that, there was this immediate 12-hour battle about the use of the word infested and what it means. And it was all bullshit. Yeah. The whole thing was bullshit. And people who got involved in that, they staked their claims yeah. even harder. And then they're fighting for stuff that they now know is wrong. Yeah. And it it gets to the point where it's so infuriating. And and you see this too. I mean, you see this in, in headlines. And this goes back to the, the point about clickbait. I was on, um, I think it was on the Yahoo News homepage the other day. And they had a headline from The Independent. And... The headline was something like Trump chief of staff. I should have it exactly, but I don't have my computer in front of me. Was something like Trump chief of staff, colon, and it was in quotes then, everything Trump says is offensive, end quote. And you see the headline, you're like, whoa, Mick Mulvaney said that about his boss? Like, whoa, yeah. he's not long for this administration. And then you have to either read in that story, they did have the full quote in that story or elsewhere, that what he said was, everything Trump says is offensive to somebody. Right. Well, the two somebody matter. Like that's, the, yeah. that's what gives the phrase its meaning. And if you elide that, you're, you're lying to your readers. Yeah. Was this The Hill? To get clicks. No, it was, uh, it was The Independent. Okay. Because The Hill, that's... Yeah, they do this all the time. Constantly. Yeah, it's 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 super frustrating. And on the one hand, we don't want to certainly we don't want to come out and say we are going to be the school moms school moms of American journalism, and all we're going to do is have one of those foam huge fingers and w- wave it at everybody right. who makes a mistake. We don't want to be in the business of that. There's plenty of people who are doing media criticism. There's plenty of people who are arguing against the excesses of the Trump supporters. But I do think what we can do is try to do it well ourselves. And we won't always get it right. And I'm sure we'll, you know, there will be sort of when you spend a lot of time hoping that the, the, the biggest payoff is to get you know, 500,000 reads on your thing. You know, you've played the scale and the volume game for so long. It's sort of hard to to reprogram yourself. Yeah. But I, I hope that we can do that and do it successfully and say, now, nah, you know what? This is a more important thing. It's not going to get as many clicks as saying, Dan Crenshaw destroys Omar. You know, I mean, fair enough. A lot of people are going to click on it. That They yeah. want to see. I hope that we can provide something a little bit different. Yeah, without sound. I, I agree with you. You know, I was a I was a media critic for Brill's content and which was a. I want to be careful with my language here. A terrible idea for a magazine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, I mean, I was grateful to Steve Brill for giving me the job, and it was a good job to have, and I learned a lot. But the idea that there was a mass national audience that was interested solely in basically media criticism and media news was weird. And look, I, I used to be a media critic. I like media criticism. I grew up in a household where... I would say one of my dad's four favorite hobbies was complaining about the New York Times. And my dad was like a major news syndicate editor and knew what he was talking about. Um, And there's a there's a place for that. But 
that's part of the problem about a lot of right-wing media is that it's it's purely not purely but a lot of outlets and a lot of voices are just simply reactive yeah to what the mainstream media does they don't send out their own reporters to do stuff so they they look at oh well, did you see what the new york times did today and they um it's this symbiotic love-hate relationship thing because they they need to complain about what the mainstream media is doing and, you know, so often what you'll hear, you know, there are a lot of conservative pundits out there who if you if someone says something critical of Donald Trump, they turn it into, yeah, but what about how the New York Times got this thing wrong? Right. You know, it's like, well, shame on them both then. You know, I mean, it doesn't have to be either or. Right. And and this is part of the problem I was getting at about how so much of the mainstream media, because it is increasingly acting like the public relations arm of the Democratic Party. Right. It is understandable that a lot of conservatives would mistake it for that and think that, you know, I don't have to believe anything you guys say because look how you screwed this up. Look at Dan Rather and Memogate and all of these kinds of things. And so, I you know, I'm sure we'll have media criticism, but I, I just – I don't want to live in that space. I just think no. it's – it's, it's well, a The moment. Dan Rather point, I mean, saying that we're going to get beyond media criticism. Let me just make one no, point. No, I know. It's, 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 like it's the Dan, freaking catnip They still have like Dan Rather on – like they have Dan Rather on talking about – Accurate reporting. No, they like use him as an expert. It's yeah. unbelievable. Like, why? Why do you think people don't trust him? I mean, there's so many examples. I mean, I think what the way that President Trump talks about the media is irresponsible, um, and and I think really, really problematic. In, in, but it does mean he doesn't have a point <laughs> in a serious way. Yeah, but I mean, no, I look. It's I like they seem determined sometimes to buttress his yeah. irresponsible arguments. Well, th- this is sort of like the nutpicking thing. Everybody is trying to live down to the expectations of the other side. <laughs> so, I um, mean, a couple other sort of housekeeping things, and then we'll do a brief rank punditry session here. We do not have a name to announce yet. And <laughs> <laughs> so we should we should tell people that the, and we can't give you what the list of names are because that we're working with because if the owner of the domain for, let's just say, rockingchair.com, if they found out that we were interested in buying it, the price of it would go up tenfold. But this has been, and we were warned about this at the beginning. This guy who's our business sort of consultant guy who's been helpful to us, I don't need to name him here, but um, who's done a lot of work in startups, he said at the very beginning, you guys don't understand names suck and it will drive you crazy. And I was like, oh, come on. How hard can it be to come up with a name? And we have agonized about names. It's I mean, unbelievable. It's gotten to the point where it's funny. For years, I used to criticize um, TV shows and radio shows where the in-house mock-up name, right? We call our thing Nuco, which is like a cliche for a new company, right? Right. Um, but like the in-house name for a new show becomes the actual name. And the best example of this was Fred Barnes and Morton Kondracki's Beltway Boys. Yeah. Where I'm sure in the early days of Fox, internally they were like, okay, we got to do something with the Beltway Boys. You know, we got to give them a show. What are we going to call it? Whatever. <laughs> and then all of a sudden there's like, you get so used to it, you end up calling it the Beltway Boys. Yeah. And then there's all these radio shows called like Studio 7C or whatever. And it's just, it's, I, it's always bothered me. And now, like, if we had been calling this thing from day one ham sandwich, I'd be like, you know. It's got a ring to it. It, it works. <laughs> it works on a lot of levels. You know? <laughs> I'm so sick of this. No, it's 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 really been the challenge. There's a great um, episode of the Startup Podcast mm-hmm. that chronicled the the launch of Gimlet Media which just sold for, I think, like $240 million or something, where they go through the name. He, he does this throughout. It's a 10-podcast uh, series, and he goes to the name thing every now and again, and it's very funny. What was there? Or- Orello or yeah, something, something like that. Yeah. But then he – I think it's like episode six. He goes in detail um, into the name thing, and there's a – I'm going to screw it up. It's a Family Guy or a South Park mm-hmm. episode where they're trying to name something and they whoever is doing this just has like puts together 12 
of the most foul, but <laughs> otherwise totally unrelated words in the English language. And they're talking to their trademark lawyer. Uh-huh. And so they'll be like, yeah, I'm not going to say the actual yeah, words, yeah. but it's, I mean, it's super, super crass. <laughs> <laughs> and the trademark lawyer for everyone's like, ah, oh, that one's taken. <laughs> like, there's no way, like those, those words had never been put together before. And like, no, can't do that one. And we, we're actually, I mean, we're almost really not at that point, which yeah. is sort of scary. We're like just doing that with, with our first names. It's, uh, it's a challenge. It's a struggle. It is a deep, it's, deep it's and abiding ch- struggle. At one point, my daughter. This, by the way, this conversation, uh-huh. uh, to be a little meta, puts way more pressure on the name now. Yeah, it now does. it's going to be, now, now we're going to be the name and everybody's like, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Hey, that's not bad. <laughs> um, my daughter, when she was she just finished tenth grade, and she was working on the history of the Soviet Union or the Russian Revolution or whatever, and she said, "I got the name for you, the new Bolshevik." <laughs> <laughs> and she had this weird, wild theory about why it would work. And yeah. I was like, "Honey, look, I know this is all ancient history to you now, but Grandpa Goldberg and Grandpa Gavora, my wife's dad." would come out of their graves (laughs) and beat me senseless (laughs) if we went with the new Bolshevik, you know. But I like the spirit. Yeah. It's good to keep my kids my kids have offered some some name. My wife she's trying she 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 has been really focused on this and she's now as desperate as we are. So she'll hear just any word and she'll she'll just do that and put media behind. She's like tuna fish media. I'm like, ah, oh, oh, tuna fish, huh? Why are you even hold, why, why are you even holding that one back? <laughs> Interesting. It's uh yeah, it's a it's a it's a challenge. It's a challenge. <laughs> um, and uh, we'll definitely have more to announce when this thing is up and running. And uh, uh, before we do the rank punditry phase, let me just and I'm sure I'll say this again at the close, but remnant listeners are a really important part of whatever we end up doing. Yes. And um, if you're interested in it, even if, and I should say, you know, we didn't say this before because we talked a lot about conservative stuff. You know, one of the, we, we've had, correct my math, five trillion conversations with investors and various media people about all this kind of stuff. And one of the points we've always made from the beginning is that whenever we give speeches, someone in the audience, whether it's a conservative audience, a corporate audience, a student audience, a main, whatever the audience is, Someone almost always asks, what can I read? Where can I go to get stuff that I trust? Right. And and look, I'm not saying this by omission that you shouldn't read National Review. I love National Review and all the rest. But National Review has got a mission that is different from the mission that we're talking about. And I support that mission. And I love that mission. But they're just different things. The the This is not going to be, to my mind at least, explicitly just for a conservative audience. No, it's that's true. It's for an audience – like, for example, I was a conservative. I read The New Republic voraciously because I was really interested in what the smart arguments were on the other side. My friend Ramesh Panuru always likes to say he wants to tackle the left's best arguments, not their worst yep. ones. And and I used to sort of make fun of that a little bit because it was just so much fun to tackle their worst arguments. Um but that's sort of where we're coming from on this. And we yeah. think that there's a real hunger among well-meaning, you know, intellectually curious, serious people who don't share our ideological convictions of sort of, you know, they watch, they see Elizabeth Warren say something that they think sounds great. And they say to themselves, gosh, I would love to hear what the counterargument is to that. And we think that's one of the things that we want to provide. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting because you, you try to avoid the, the, the most extreme or the most mockable arguments on the left. When I was in journalism school at Columbia, I came down to D.C. and we did a site visit to the Brookings Institution and E.J. Dion spoke to our class. This is what he said he did. He said, this is my rule for writing a column is I always try to pick the strongest argument uh, of the position that I'm arguing against. I don't think he always does that. None of us do, right? right? I mean, but I don't think he always does that. It can sometimes be challenging when you have because this that's a guiding philosophy of mine. I tried to do the same thing, but then you have Bernie Sanders right. Medicare for all plan and 
when he first talked to me and we were talking about something similar in the 2016 campaign, I thought, boy, that's that is way out there. I'm not going to engage that. I think it's better to talk about you know the Hillary Clinton plan. And, right, right. and it turns out now that's the center of like what Democrats are arguing uh, right. or many of them. Now, that, there's been some back and forth in the debates about it, but it's a it's a balance. It's yeah. A balance. No, I, I think that's right. And I, I think that the best test and this is something Peter Beinart always used to say. But the best test of whether or not an opinion or an opinion, opinion writer or an opinionated writer is being intellectually honest is how they characterize the other side's argument. Yeah. And if I read something by a left winger and they even come close to capturing my actual position rather than the straw man position that they want to argue with, then I give them a read. But yeah. there's an enormous amount of stuff on the left and the right where – People argue with the stuff they want to argue with rather than the stuff the other side is Absolutely. saying, you know. Um, but since you brought up Bernie and all the rest, did you – so you're back in the mix now. You're a – Fully. You were like – You're going. Back, you're going to be on special report tonight. Uh, you were on Outnumbered, which is always a thrill. And uh, – It was an intense discussion yesterday. Jumped right back in the heart of it. And uh, so now that you're back in the uh, swamp, what would you think of the debate? I mean, it's been it's been interesting to watch them both. I mean, I think the big takeaway for me, to a certain extent, is if you look at where the where the Democratic Party is today, there has long been this internal debate among Democrats, right, among the moderates and the and the far farther left. But it was for a long time hidden by their support for Barack Obama, the Obama administration. I mean, this happens. This isn't new. This happens when your when your party is in control of the of the White House. So we didn't see those fissures as clearly and cleanly as we're seeing them now. And it was fascinating to watch that that first debate in particular, I thought, where you had four of the five first candidates to speak, just giving their openings, one minute opening statement, four of the five of them took shots at Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, mm -hmm. sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly, for being sort of fantasy land theorists. And while I still believe that the center of gravity in the Democratic Party is on the left and on the far left, uh, very interesting to see that there are elected officials and people who want to be president who are sort of laying out an alternative path. And I think Joe Biden, obviously, as as the front runner, as determined by polling, is the candidate most likely to occupy that lane. But I think there doesn't have to be a single lane there. I think there can be multiple sort of strains of moderate, more moderate democratic positioning. You have to say just in closing that that centrist Democrat position is a lot further left than it was 15 yeah. years ago. I yeah. mean, this is, there's been, there have been books written and there's a lot of uh, brow furrowing about Republicans becoming a more ideological, ideologically conservative party. That was true, I think, after the Republican revolution in 1994. It's true if you, if you track congressional votes, certainly true after the Tea Party. I'm not sure it's as true now, but you saw a lot less of that kind of analysis of Democrats. And I think um, it's sort of been happening while people, uh, journalists in particular, are sleeping because it doesn't strike journalists as that far left. Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. Not that we're going to slide more back into media criticism, but – I have a slightly different take on it, and you said it, you hate it when people quote themselves, but I talked about this a bit on the Glop podcast, and then I was so inspired by my own brilliance that I wrote a column about it today, which will be out tomorrow. Um, you should but, blog about it later. Tweet a little bit about it. Um, <laughs> you take a picture of your quote of yourself and maybe embed the audio. Maybe maybe uh, <laughs> have a picture with Pippa, my spaniel, next to it. Um, it is amazing. Like, so if you take a step back and you think about – all of the hype about Barack Obama, forget he's a light worker and he's the one according to Oprah and he's a messiah figure and all that kind of stuff. Forget that they gave him a Nobel Peace Prize on spec. Remember he hadn't yeah, done yeah, anything yeah, yet? Yeah, You're like, yeah. but we know you'll yeah, live up to this, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Obama himself talked about how he wanted to be a transfer – he wanted to be a left-wing Reagan. Yeah. And up until the end of the Obama administration, that was basically still the conventional wisdom. I mean Jonathan Chait wrote that book about how it was all this stuff. And then over the two nights, no one criticized Obama really by name, but everyone was taking shots yeah. 
at the Obama legacy, the Obama administration. Now, some of that has to do with the fact, and this is a point that Ramesh makes, that to be a truly transformational president, you need a successor who's of the same party so yeah. they can solidify your stuff. Right. Reagan had that. FDR obviously had that, as, as Jack put it. FDR was his own successor, you know? <laughs> and uh, so what I see on the, on the debate stage over the two nights is, you know, people talk about how the Democrats lost a thousand elected positions over the term of Obama's administration, right. which is another sign that he was never going to be FDR. FDR's coalition grew right. while he was in office. Reagan's coalition grew while he was in office. There were more Republican office holders when Reagan left office than when he entered. There were a lot fewer under Obama, uh, Democrats under right. Obama. And, and so like Ron Brownstein and some people, they argue that that number is inflated because you're benchmarking it to 2008 when Obama had coattails and be benchmarked at 2006. It's much more normal. Fine. Whatever. Forget the quantity part of it. The quality of the guys who lost were overwhelmingly disproportionately the moderate and sort of conservative Democrat wing of the party. Yeah. And in those 2010 and 2012 and 2014 elections, Obamacare murdered Southern Democrats. Yeah. It murdered Midwestern Democrats. And so the remaining Democrats after Obama were all from deep blue you know, places, Massachusetts, New York, California, the de Blasio types who who don't care about running against Republicans. They only care about running against other Democrats in primaries. Mm. And and so even though it is incandescently obvious that the best chance of beating Trump is with a somewhat moderate Democrat return to normalcy type, you know, which is Biden's trying to be, but he's got his own problems with his own personality. The vast bulk of the Democrats running in this debate in this election they're all running for the Bernie Sanders lane. And it's because the party was, by losing the, the right wing of the Democratic Party, the left wing thought, okay, now we really are a left wing party. And so it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a, do you remember all of those debates about Obamacare where people like us would say, we would quote um, Barney Frank and these people who'd let slip. Um, and there was that quote from Obama from a few years ago that, Obamacare was basically just a Trojan horse down payment or a down payment yeah. for socialized medicine right. and all that kind of stuff. And you were called a crazy a weirdo yeah. and, and a fever swamp. I'm sure it was fact-checked several times. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure it was a politifact, you know, obsession. And now it is obvious that's the, from Bernie and Elizabeth and all those people that that is exactly how they see it. And they see that Obamacare was this half measure and all the rest. And it just, to me, it, it just shows that, first of all, the the entire Obama legacy was written on water yeah. and that the the party does not know how to talk to audiences that don't already agree with it. Yeah, I think that's true, although I, I, I guess I, I have a different view of the candidates themselves. Now, whether we want to group them into sort of first-tier candidates and second-tier candidates or third-tier And then de Blasio. <laughs> and then de Blasio, <laughs> who deserves his own tier at the very bottom and, of and, whatever and, it is. And Jack can check my math, but I believe that de Blasio could increase his support by several thousand percent and he would still be in Latin. <laughs> That's probably true. Well, at zero, you know. Yes. yes. <laughs> he, um, but but I, I, what was striking to me was that even as you had uh, the, some of the prominent Democrats, the, the, basically the, the sort of next level Democrats, uh, Harris, Warren, Sanders, Buttigieg for um, at least part of the O'Rourke, although I think he's, he's slip, slipping out of that he's a furry. tier. <laughs> um, the, the others, though, were not going along with that far left, you know, with sort of the Bernie Sandersization of the Democratic Party. Yeah, I mean, but aren't they You had Bullock, you had Delaney, you had – I'm forgetting the others who spoke early in I the – I rest my case. I mean, my point is that – Klobuchar. Though, well, Klobuchar talked about a special case, but – Klobuchar talked about realistic – But I mean, you had all of these Democrats at least making this case that where the party, at least in my estimation, seems to be going – Certainly, if you judge where the party, where the where the energy in the party was in the 2016 elections, they're saying, "Wait, don't do that." And some of them were referring explicitly to what happened in 2018, saying, "No, no, no, the moderates are what right. helped us win seats in in 2018." And it, it's just fascinating to see that there, there's I'll put it this way: there's more of a push and pull as we watch this play out on the debate stage than I would have predicted if you asked me 
certainly right after the 2016 election, I said, no, 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 this party's on track to move far left. Mm -hmm. And everybody's going there. The activists are all there. Um, the, the candidates, the people that, that uh, Democratic activists look to, the elected officials, they're all moving in that direction. And while there's still some truth to that, there, it's interesting to see the pushback. Now, that pushback may be other than Biden, because he's defending the Obama legacy, may just be sort of trampled. I mean, it may just go away. Yeah, so that's my theory, is that these, like Bullock, he makes this case, which is a good case. I mean, it's a rational case that he won in a state that voted yeah. for Trump at like 20 points. But almost all these guys, I don't know, like two weeks ago, someone said, I, I kind of like Bullock. And I was like, is there someone named Bullock running for president? You know, um, And Delaney is sort of favorite of conservatives, but he's a nobody congressman and my point my point is is that the the real talented bench of of the democratic party of the sort of moderates who know how to speak to audiences outside of their bubble they were all destroyed by obama yeah and i think there's a parallel thing going on in the republican party where uh republicans who know how to talk outside of their bubble they all got wiped out in 2016 by moderate Democrats. So it could be that the long-term future of the Democratic Party is looking better because they've got people who are more serious people. But the ones who are up on stage, they're sort of like this rump. There are, to use a term, they're a remnant of the moderate wing of the party. They don't have national profile. They don't have the chops. And they're, they don't have the money-raising apparatus that someone like Elizabeth Warren or yeah. Bernie Sanders has. And so I agree with you. But I also just think that they're they're all running for what is a plausible, not guaranteed, but a plausible expectation that Joe Biden implodes and they want to be the one who gets his people. And I'm not sure that a lot of those people are as gettable because so much of his support, like with black women in South Carolina, is a is a loyalty to Obama thing yeah. and a name yeah. recognition thing. Yep. Yep. I don't know that Delaney, because he's the next moderate in line when when Biden starts screaming about how he has armadillos in his trousers or something and gets carted off by the, the orderlies. I don't know that they, well, then he was moderate, so now I like Delaney. I think a lot of them go to Kamala like yes. or wherever. Well, there's, there was polling. I think it was a morning consult poll. I was talking about this with Jessica Tarlov on, on uh, sort of in the commercial breaks at, at Fox yesterday. And I hadn't seen the poll myself, but she was describing a poll in which they asked for second choices, third choices. And it was exactly as jumbled as, as yeah. you're suggesting. I mean, it was like you're, Bernie's your first choice. And I mean, Biden's your first choice and Bernie's your second choice. Yeah. It, it is that kind of and, – and I think there's – at this stage of the race, remember, you know, we're paying very close attention to this. We're – you know, I listened to the debates and then I went back and I reread the transcripts and the American people aren't paying attention no. to this. You know, hardcore Democratic activists might be. I mean, I think the first CNN uh, number was like eight and a half million or something, yeah. which was down from 15 million uh, of MSNBC. That's a – fraction of a fraction of a fraction. Yeah. I mean, this is not... So I, th I think you have an opportunity for some of these other people to to maybe establish themselves. But right now, what we're talking about largely is a name ID yeah. game. I yeah. mean, and a little bit of loyalty to Obama thing, right? You know, they knew yeah. Biden is like yeah, yeah. Obama's wingman kind of thing. Yeah. All right. So we've, we've checked the box of rank punditry. I know you're still getting your sea legs in all of this. <laughs> and so we're going to wrap up because we've got... Founders of new media venture things to do. Um, <laughs> uh, thank you for coming on, but that just feels weird. Uh, <laughs> but I do want to just sort of say, if you're interested in all of this, please sign up at Reagan35x.com. Uh, Steve is going to start producing something or other. I don't know what it is. And as we sort of uh, get going, it's going to get more exciting. And, you know, at some point there will be swag for those, you know, those happy few who are with us from the beginning that other people will not be able to get. And I don't know how that's all going to work. We have people with green eyed shades who are working on all that. But uh, the tuna fish media uh, <laughs> emblem is going to be <laughs> real. The logo is going to be great. The new Bolshevik. <laughs> um, so anyway, Steve Hayes, welcome back. Thank you for coming. And uh, I'm sure I'll be hearing from you again. Thanks for having me. See?